0: All right, so you've got a new book, uh, Christian History in Seven Sentences. Uh, So I'm I'm a nerd. Instead of having my library organized by author, it's arranged by subtopics. And I'm looking at my church history section right now, which takes up at least two shelves. There's a lot of history going on there. So how did you so audaciously decide to summarize it in seven sentences? We want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Folden-Lore, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary. A historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry and Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary, Kansas City. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Jennifer Woodruff Tate. She's an Episcopal priest serving in Kentucky. She is the managing editor of Christian History Magazine and has authored several books. Dr. Tate, thank you for joining the conversation.
1: It's great to be here.
0: So uh, as a person who loves church history, I always like to ask church historians, why church history?
1: Um, Well, for me, uh, initially, I I got involved in church history because I wanted to fix the modern church. Uh, I, I grew up United Methodist and i began i went seminary in the 90s and you know there are always problems with whatever denomination one is in but at that point there were various problems i thought i saw in modern methodism and i thought if i learned how methodists did it at the beginning at the very beginning that i would be able to go out single-handedly and fix everything this is the sort of thing you think when you're 21 22 years old that turned out not to be true but it got me reading about the Christian past, and I, I began to discover not just the Methodist past, but the whole past of the church, and to realize how many times things had come up in the past, whether events in the world or discussions within the church, things that were we were struggling with now, that there were times the church had. Uh, dealt with this sort of thing before and talked about it before and sometimes come up with solutions to it before that we weren't trying so that was that was the beginning of my interest in church history.
0: So you studied Methodism so much that you're no longer a Methodist? Is that, is that what it is about? Uh,
1: that, that, as a matter of fact, that is actually what happened. Um, <laughs> as embarrassing I had to
0: laugh.
1: And then I joined the Episcopal Church, which has many, many problems of its own. And now that I've studied it for a while, I was like, wow, why didn't I just stay Methodist? Um, <laughs> but I, I can tell you what happened. I wrote an article um, on, on Methodism an essay on Methodism for a book on American denominationalism. Uh, Betsy Flowers, who we were talking about before we got on, a friend of mine from grad school, Baptist, uh, knew some people who were putting together this book that was supposed to be an introduction to different denominations for you, very, very smart college students or grad students, was basically the audience. Um, and, and it was called American Denominationalism Perspectives, uh, something like that. So Betsy knew the editor who uh keith harper from the university of alabama press and he said you know any young i was young he said you know any young scholars who are who would be knowledgeable about methodism and so um that's he said yeah i know Jennifer Woodruff Kate so i wrote this article which was very much about how methodists understand themselves and understand their polity and methodist polity is very much not baptist polity it's very not congregational it's very structured it's very hierarchical and and the reason this is so that there is a point to this story is because early methodists found their particular method of sort of changing preachers often and having this large bunch of preachers overseen by the the bishop and, and deploying them as needed to be very effective in spreading the gospel what happened was that along the way methodists started thinking their structure was just great because it was great and so that was that was the thesis of my article anyway so i wrote this article and i had been attending episcopal churches off and on during this whole period of time and i finished writing the article and i said to my husband well i think i just wrote myself right out of the Methodist church um there there were a lot of other factors around that uh, but it but it was in fact uh, part of what was going on then as i said now i've been episcopalian for um 13 years and have now got to the point, you know, everything looks good. The grass looks greener, that sort of thing. And now I've sort of gotten to the point where I'm like, well, there was a lot in Methodism and the warmheartedness that that the Episcopal Church could use. So Mm -hmm. no denomination is perfect, I guess, is the point of that story.
0: Well, you know, I'm I'm chuckling somewhat because it's very similar to my story in the sense of um, it was in a time where I was studying Baptist history for school and became very disillusioned with the tradition I was raised, which was Southern Baptist, and uh, really was looking to make the jump to Presbyterian Church USA when I discovered this uh, offshoot of the Southern Baptist Convention that I had never heard of uh, called the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, and so um, that was a little bit easier of a transition uh, for me, but um, all right, so let's get a little nerdy on church history real quick before we get to the book. I've got a quiz for you uh, on on this day in church history. Uh, we are recording this on October the 28th for anybody listening to this later that whenever this airs, they're like, no, that didn't happen on this day. So three simple questions. Okay. You ready? Okay. All right. On this day, who adopted the sign of the cross on the eve of battle?
1: Well, I'm a, I'm a, I, was, I forgot that it would have been today, but Constantine, I would I'm imagining.
0: That's right. Yeah. Remember the year?
1: I should because I wrote a book chapter about it, but I always get it. Mixed. It's, it's either three thirteen or three fourteen. I always get it mixed up.
0: All right, so th- uh, three twelve uh, would be the sign okay. Of the, yeah, the three thirteen the
1: is then is the edict, the edict of Milan. It was all right around that. Time.
0: That was that was just an extra extra question that was part of question uh, one. But you got the question right, which was Constantine. All right, who was Constantine on the eve of battle
1: against? Uh, and here I'm gonna get all these uh, these um, uh, Roman names mixed up. It was one of the other, the, the, the Caesars and the Augustus that were these varying levels of emperor and it was one of the other ones, You're but right. I can't You're remember
0: right. his name. You're right on. All right, it was Maxentinius. All right, and this one's a little bit uh, different era, okay? Uh, on this day in 1635, this school was founded in Massachusetts for training ministers.
1: Uh, 1635, I'm thinking, one, one of the Ivies, I'm thinking Harvard, Yale.
0: It is, it's Harvard, Harvard University. So not a lot of people know that, you know, Harvard was founded to, to train pastors. So uh, yeah.
1: No, we we recently for Christian History Magazine did an issue on Christians in higher education. And we had a whole article on the Ivies and how they were all pretty much, found, not all, quite all of them, but most of them were founded to train pastors and what happened, so.
0: Well, I'm going to give you a three out of three, because you had no preparation for this whatsoever, and you were right on the line with, with all three questions. So uh, so yeah. All right. So you've got a new book, uh, Christian History in Seven Sentences. Uh, so I'm I'm a nerd. Instead of having my library organized by author, it's arranged by subtopics. And I'm looking at my church history section right now, which takes up at least two shelves. There's a lot of history going on there. So how did you so audaciously decide to summarize it in seven sentences?
1: Well, the short and practical answer to that question is because University Press asked me to. Uh, they, they have a series called sort of X in seven sentences. So far, there is my book, there is philosophy in seven sentences, and there's Old Testament and New Testament in seven sentences. And I, and I understand there's going to be a theology in seven sentences. So this was their concept for uh, David McNaught, my editor, uh, his and others concepts uh, for introducing church history to the average person. Average is the wrong way to put it, but the person who doesn't have graduate education in church history, the lay person, the, the man on the street, the woman on the street. I hate most of those terms, but but that's what the audience is. And so the idea is that you take seven sentences that have something to do with your topic. For the philosophy guy, it was, different sentences from different people in the history of philosophy and then he explained how that was how what each of those things meant and how that was relevant to the Christian faith so for mine uh Dr. McNutt said go heavy on documents and councils because we're going to have this theology book which I do hope they have someday which is going to have some have some other things so you know we really want to talk about not so much, oh, we must have from these particular people, but what are sort of moments or turning points and uh, find, find sentences there. So that's how we came up uh, between me and him with the, the sentences that we have, uh, which means that every time I say what the book is about to somebody, they have to make the joke about, is it only seven sentences long? <laughs>
0: Like, hey, I was held to this. Oh, and by the way, don't worry, nobody's gonna be offended if you call them a uh, you know, a common person or lay person or anything like that. Most likely I'm going to say something that's gonna offend them. So I'll pressure off of you. And okay, always yeah. well, always pressure onto me. Yeah, so. I was
1: like the average person. Well, I don't think anybody has average wrong in the image of <laughs> God. So this is like a problem here. Um anyway, the person without graduate training. And and one of the things that I found, although I had the church in mind when I was writing it, uh, you know, sort of motivated Sunday school classes, that kind of thing, that uh, right away I got a lot of feedback from some people who taught undergrads that it was working really well in that context, where there were undergrads, especially in a Christian school, who were being forced to take church history, because they had to, because the school said so, but they had absolutely no background in the subject, so it's found a good audience with that group as well.
0: So let's dig into some of these seven pivotal moments in church history. The Edict of Milan, which we were referencing earlier, uh, credited as the earliest and most pivotal piece of legislation in favor of religious freedom um, in the ancient world. Constantine uh, creates this decree. You've begged the question, was this a moment of celebration or a funeral? Why?
1: Well, I partially, um, I don't know if I begged the question or just asked it, but I partially asked the question because of a student I once had who I uh, referred to in the book, who basically, it was a long story as to why he was in seminary when he had lost his faith, but his argument basically was that Constantine had actually sold the church down the river, that he, my student, would have been willing to believe in sort of the persecuted church of the first three centuries. He thought that there was really something to that, but that once Christianity cooperated with the state, it lost everything that made it distinctive. I don't think it lost everything that made it distinctive, but I think it was a challenge that was very imperfectly met. You know, the new Testament is very obviously addressed to a a church that is, that is in peril, that knows it's a minority. And yet there are these, these, you know, wonderful promises and statements about the kingdom of God and the coming kingdom of God and God's reign covering the earth. And when you're persecuted, it's very different to balance all those statements than it is when you're in power and i think that you know the 21st century church and i mean the 20th century church people were saying this 20 30 years ago when i was in college and seminary you know is really coming to the point where we're going well wait a minute actually if we think of ourselves as as people who are not in charge maybe some of this makes more sense so although i i think constantine's fascinating i i think he was Basically sincere. I mean, he was a politician, but I think he was a sincere one. He, I think he was. He, I I read three biographies of Constantine while I was writing that chapter, and I think he really. It wasn't just political. He thought there was something to Jesus, but I think that he left the church a very ambiguous legacy, because Christians have proved that when we get in power, we're not really good at dealing with it.
0: Oh no, you can't give us any modern examples of that. You know, in the last. I don't know, nine months, uh, to twelve months, maybe. Uh,
1: yeah, I, I just just start googling. Um, <laughs> you know, go, go to the Christianity Day website and read that. Read the the news. Uh, various pieces of news. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm afraid if I start giving a lot of specific modern examples, I'm going to make somebody upset. Uh,
0: Don't don't worry. We've, I've probably done that here in the last couple episodes we've had. So, uh, you know, let, us dig deep, uh, deeper into one specific, uh, chapter of the book, because I think it has, uh, so many implications for today. Um, so over the next decade, Christians gain ground around the Roman empire, but so does division among theological camps, which leads to the famous council of Nicaea, of course, many people have this holy view of what took place at this gathering, why, the, uh, you know, we've, we've got this formulated creedal statement that, you know, comes out of it. But why was the meeting more contentious uh, at that time than probably your standard Baptist business meeting?
1: Uh, well, Baptist business meetings or anything like Methodist or Anglican business meetings, can get really contentious. But I actually, I actually think that we do the, the Council of Nicaea more of a favor if we think of it like a modern business meeting. Uh, that you know, rather than thinking of like, oh, here are these holy people, and you know, you see the, the, the I mean, gorgeous icons of them, and they have halos around their heads, and Constantine has <laughs> a halo. And well, yes, they were trying. They, there was a spiritual need that needed to be filled. There was a lot of discussion, and some of it very controversial and upsetting to people about who the scripture said Christ was. What you know, th- these terms that aren't in the scripture, like Trinity. You know, is this the best way to talk about this? And 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 it was boiling over, you know, from just sort of discussions among philosophical people to, you know, discussions on the street. There's that famous sentence about you know people making up songs and they're out in the market and they're singing about whether whether the father the son is subordinate to the father. You know, so there was a real spiritual need, but also like a lot of church business meetings, I've been part of. You know, it's like that we want people to just shut up about this so we can go on and do what we're here to do. I think that, I think that it doesn't hurt to think about the Council of Nicaea that way. I think that, you know, they produced an incredible doctrinal statement that has absolutely stood the test of time. They, they captured, I think, what was crucial about the Christian faith, uh, but they didn't do it because they were all sort of just sitting there feeling very holy. It was, it was fought out, Right in the middle of, and I mean, Council of Nicene didn't just deal with the creed. They were like, we need to deal with the date of Easter, and we need to deal with, you know, what priests should do. We, you know, they were, they had a whole big business agenda, that they ran to try to renew the church and deal with controversy and deal with division, and and it, out of this, came this thing that, as an Episcopalian, at any rate, I confess in church every Sunday, and I've often said to people, you know, I, I won't die on any hill unless it's in the Nicene Creed. You know, I have opinions on other stuff. I have opinions on, you know, women's ordination, obviously, I'm for it. I have opinions on human sexuality. I have opinions on peace and war. I have opinions on all the things that Christians have had opinions about. But I'm not dying on any hill except the Nicene Creed. And and, and yet it came out of this political business meeting. And, and that's a, a huge tension, I think, in our faith, this, this idea that, Here are people just sort of trying to do their job, Um, but in doing their job and in, I think, mostly trying to do it to the glory of God, they produced this, this incredible piece of theology.
0: This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. For 25 years, CBF Church Benefits has proudly served the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, providing retirement benefits and insurance services for CBF affiliated church ministries and staff, along with CBF field personnel in Atlanta and around the world. CBB helps simplify the administrative burdens of your retirement plan, allowing you and your ministry staff. To focus on your ministry, CBB can also help you maintain your overall benefit package, including life and disability benefit and international medical insurance for international missions. Through generous philanthropic support, CBF Church Benefits recently launched the Financial Wellness Initiative. This new initiative offers ministers the opportunity to receive financial relief grants, financial education experience, and financial planning services. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website. At churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefits, and the financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry.
1: Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cdf.net slash podcast support.
0: You know, not many people know what happened to the losing side of the council because the winner seems to always write the history books. Can you give us a, a more realistic peek into what happened to Arius and those who held his the same theological views?
1: Yeah, well, my memory, and i am actually... Terribly bad about remembering uh, names and dates when I'm talking, as opposed to when I'm reading. But my so I may be wrong, but my memory is that he had actually died by the time it came about. Um, but that many of his many of his followers, some both previous to the council and, and then afterwards, some people sort of split off and formed very it, it, as various what the earth, what Nicean Christianity called heresies. Were debated, you know. Would form off and you know, and form like the you know, autonomous Church of the East and various things that are that still exist today and are, you know, sort of recognized as still brothers and sisters in Christ, but, but not ones who subscribe to the Nicene, the Nicene Creed, uh, you know. But many of these people were excommunicated, or if they were, you know, bishops or priests or deacons, they may have lost their their church, uh, you know. It, it helps if you think about it just the way you think about modern church fights, I think actually, uh, which could be, it can be sort of uh what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, yeah. Like a peek behind the curtain, you know, sort of like an expose, but also to me, that sort of thing always gives me hope because it's like they, they didn't really know everything they were doing and neither do we. And so I, I can feel more encouraged that I can kind of stumble through what I'm trying to do for God and, Something good will come of it, but that. But we shouldn't uh, easily push aside the fact that, you know, that a lot of the people uh, on on the other side, you know, ended up, you know, in, you know, losing jobs or other things like that because of this.
0: Karen Armstrong and her book "Fields of Blood: um, the History of Religion and Violence" uh, has a, a fascinating chapter um and when she talks about you know uh, the aftermath of this experience you know and, and i think for a lot of people obviously we have this this creedal statement that stood the test of time but it was a lot more contentious than i think people realize and yeah you know uh, theological stances lives ruined jobs lost lives you know lost as a result of it um so how how about the arian controversy teach us about how we deal with theological differences and and the treatment of those that are quote unquote you know the losing side of a conflict
1: yeah well i don't think you should kill them uh now the area died of natural causes so i don't particularly mean him but you know i think that's sort of the first the first step you know even if even if you decide these people are your enemy scripture tells us to love our enemies so there you go i i think I think we have a real—we don't have a really good hermeneutic in the church for dealing with people we think are wrong. Um, I mean, I happen to think Arius was wrong. I'm—I'm I'm a very strong believer in in the creed and in Nicene Christianity and in the ideas about Christ being fully human and fully divine and not subordinated to the Father. You know that—that—that that, that is welcome language to me, but. But just because I think Arius was wrong doesn't mean I think that Arius' followers should have lost their jobs, you know, or you know, or in some places, you know, in some cases even died. It, it's, that's really hard <laughs> because we tend, you know, humans because of sin just naturally tend to get in positions of power and use it to their advantage, and it's so easy when you're doing that in a Christian context to think you're speaking for God. Uh,
0: in, in what ways does Nicaea set a precedent in, in the church's future?
1: Well, I think it set a couple of precedents. I mean, one it, one of the precedents is something that we've alluded to, which is the fact that for the next, you know, millennia and change, uh, you know, there's this close state-church relationship. You know, what I mean, because Nicaea comes into being because Constantine's like, I want you all to shut up. So, you know, that first of all, there's this idea that that the state and the church, the, the state has something to say about the church, and even uh, and even involves itself at times in the beliefs of the church, and that's something that's going to get that gets questioned a lot over the next you know thousand couple thousand years, um, you know, by people like the Anabaptists, you know, and and others. But that that's one precedent. A a better precedent, I think, that it also sets is that if we have the idea in the church that if we have a disagreement. We should get together and talk about it. And it starts this idea that there will be councils and that people will take counsel together about pressing theological and practical problems. And I think that by and large has been a good thing for the church. Um, I say that as someone who also knows that sometimes you go to church meetings and you're like, oh my goodness, why are we doing this? Well, we're doing this because I got together and did it in Nicaea. And at its best, um, you know, it can. We can gather and take counsel for the mission of the church and the ministry of the church, which is actually a quote from the Book of Common Prayer. And we, you know, we can come up with things that are transforming. Uh, So it left us that legacy as well. The idea that that how Christian, one of the big ways Christians solve things is by getting together and talking about it
0: you have uh the great schism of 1054 the nailing of the 95 theses uh the world missionary conference of 1910 and the second vaticans in here you know as a as a church historian myself by by two degrees i know these dates and moments by heart but i would dare say that the average church member does not why do you think that is
1: well for a couple of reasons uh one is that that at least in in more evangelical contexts, at any rate, there there is this tendency to sort of jump from Jesus to now. Um, Christian History magazine that I edit uh, was started in the early 1980s uh, by a man named Kent Curtis, whose original training was not as a historian. He he was uh, the owner of, of Vision Video, which produced Christian videos, and but he began as he sort of read more about various people that they were producing videos on like Luther and Wesley and Calvin and he he realized that he had not heard in his church growing up like anything much about these people. I mean maybe people have heard of Luther in the 95 Theses. I would say that of those things you listed you know that's, uh, that's the one people are most likely to have heard of. But uh, Dr. Curtis started to say well we're just, we, we think we can just take the early church and we can just you know apply it on to today's church without looking at all what came in between. Um, you know, and so, the, I mean, I believe that people should read scripture for themselves and I believe they should apply it to their own life, but I believe it's immeasurably enriched if you can do that in the knowledge of how people have applied scripture to their lives and to the life of the church in the past. And uh, and I still think that in America in particular, and I'm moving sort of beyond just evangelicals, and now there's, there's a real desire for Immediately and for the now. Americans are just not good at history um, as a people. You know, when I visited Britain, which I've done many times with, and which has its own problems, but you walk around and you could be walking down, down this street with, you know, a thousand year old cobblestones. They're passing. I remember in Oxford, I passed this coffee shop and they're like, this was the, the first coffee shop in, in England and it was founded in, I don't know, like 1340 or something. You know, it, it's there and it's surrounding you and you have to reckon with it in a way that, you know, we're a young country. We don't really have to reckon with that. And so, well, I think modern people are bad at history in general, I think Americans are particularly bad at it. Uh, we always want to do the new. Um, and that's not always a good thing.
0: Yeah, how might cur- uh, clergy consider blending spiritual formation and, and church history?
1: That's a really interesting question. Um, one thing that that we that we do in, in sort of regularly in the episcopal context, but that could be easily done in other contexts, if someone wanted to, is we have a sanctoral calendar. Uh, we have you we can we can get into or not exactly what Episcopalians feel about saints and what Catholics feel about saints and whether you pray to saints. but but we have this calendar of holy men and women from the past. Who we remember on certain days. And so one thing that happens at my church at any rate is when we have evening prayer, if it happens to be the day that a saint is on the calendar, the person that leads evening prayer will get out. There's a wonderful little book that's got readings and prayers for each saint, um, that's published by the Episcopal Church. And he'll he'll get out that book and he'll say, Well, we're celebrating Saint Jerome today. You know, and here's a little bit about Jerome, and then we do evening prayer and 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 there's a prayer that says, you know, Lord, we thank you for Saint Jerome and and here are some ways we want to be like saint jerome i'm I'm paraphrasing uh you know and that's 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 a small way but it's like it it brings you into the idea that when you're praying you you're gathering together with people of previous centuries who have previously prayed and previously wrestled with the things that you're wrestling with and so you know that's one way whether in uh you know church some kind of corporate devotion you know or in private devotion is just Find out some more, like, like the quiz you were giving me earlier about what happened October 28th. Find out some more about what happened in church history on the, the day that you're praying and then pray about it. You know, be guided by those events. Think about those people. Think about what those people teach you about about the Christian faith and, and then bring that into your prayers. And this is something that now after all these years of being formed in this that I do sort of automatically. But it's it, it can be learned. You know, it can be taught you know so that that's a big one that i that i mentioned
0: and looking over these critical moments in churches you know the church's history what does our past indicate about our future
1: Yeah, that's a big question um uh, well something that i said frequently to people during the course of the pandemic um is that there isn't a lot that's actually new christian history didn't Decided to do an issue on plagues and epidemics in Christian history shortly after the pandemic began, and we did this issue. And I thought, well, by the time it comes out, well, we still have a pandemic. Well, we still have a pandemic. Uh, but I learned from that something that I often learn from from other issues. But it was particularly cute with that that everything that people are complaining about in terms of, oh, this is unprecedented, and you know, nobody's ever reacted this way before, and nothing like this has ever happened before is all actually balderdash. Uh, Every time a plague has come around, and there are historians of the history of science and medicine have written about this, every time a plague has come around, people have reacted in pretty much the exact same way. There's been division over how to deal with it in the church and outside of the church. Martin Luther's uh, pamphlet that he wrote about how to deal with the, the bubonic plague, we put some of it in the magazine and it could have been written yesterday. He's like, you know, this is, you know, some people are just sort of, pretending nothing's happening and going on just as it was. I mean, he says it in different languages, but this is essentially what in different languages is essentially what he's saying. You know, some people are going on as if nothing's happening and some people won't go out of their house, you know, and, and here we are trying to cope with these two extremes and how do we help and how do we love our neighbor? I mean, you could have written that yesterday. There is, there is so much in the past that is, that shows us that nothing is unprecedented uh which could i suppose could be depressing but i actually find it comforting to think you know sort of like we we're not ever so far that jesus can't deal with us we're not we're not ever so screwed up that something can't come out of it something good can't come out of it the the issue of course is that you have to be willing to to let something come out of it and to Mm-hmm. submit and to listen and to pray and to do things that we don't necessarily want to do. But I think for me, the past, gives, studying the past gives me a lot of hope because I, I don't see the past as being a foreign country. I see the past as being people like me who are trying to serve Christ, who did things that sometimes were bad and sometimes were good, and I can sort of look at and learn from what they did, you know, so ultimately I find it help, hopeful and helpful
0: all right so i'm looking over these seven critical moments in church history and i can see you know exactly why you picked them um but why not other moments like 1095 with pope urban igniting the first crusade 1272 thomas aquinas and summa theologia 1439 gutenberg press or or even the, the great awakening what moments didn't make the cut and why
1: Uh, Well, several of those were actually on the list. Um, The Council of Orange was on the list. I wanted uh, Athanasius on the Incarnation uh, to be on the list. Uh, And that was when Dr. McNutt said, we're going to have a theology one, and that that really belongs in there. As a consolation, I wrote a lot about Athanasius anyway, when I wrote about the Nicene Creed. Uh, The problem with making any kind of list, and I'm sure Mark Knoll had this problem when he did his turning points in church history. The problem with making any kind of list is you gotta leave things off, you know. And University had already decided on seven. I will say that these, you know, I wanted to cover all of church history, and these seven um, helped me do that. They each of them sort of rounded me in a particular era in a way that I could talk about how how we got to that point and then what happened afterwards. I I do think, particularly when you mentioned the the First Crusade, that you know there, you know, we could have possibly picked a turning point, a, a sentence that. So, so what I, what I was saying about the um, about the First Crusade that that none of the some of the turning points I picked, like the Council of Nicaea, as you pointed out, or the Ninety Five Theses, touched off some periods of religious violence, but or the the Great Schism. Um, I suppose the Great Schism comes closest to being a turning point that was actually an act of religious violence, um, you know. But if we put the First Crusade in there, that, that that's an interesting thought. How how would how would that have changed the narrative I was telling? Um, how would it have made given it a more minor note? Um, that's a really interesting thought.
0: So you know, kind of going back to my previous question, you know, you address this a little bit um, looking at church history, you know. W- But what about now what what gives you hope for the future of the church based on what's happening right now
1: a couple of things one is that i think that a lot of people a lot of people have figured out before the pandemic that we couldn't just do church as usual but now everybody's figured it out um so i think i don't you know i don't mean to say oh the pandemic was good because we figured this out i mean the pandemic was bad uh but out of that badness we uh, it gives me hope that pe- there are a lot of people very seriously looking at how we are church and how we follow Christ in the 21st century in ways that they were not doing before that. Uh, and that's, you know, how, you know, how we got here is so unimaginably tragic, but the fact that we are here and that we realize that Christendom really is over and that we know so much more about the challenges facing, you know, the elites in charge of denominations, there's so much more or, or it's available to them to know about the challenges facing um, regular people. That, that gives me hope that we'll be able to actually do some things. I, I don't think that, you know, looking back at church history, there's so many times when people are like, we solved this, you know, and we never actually have. But there are also cases that, you know, I think of the abolition of slavery, of various you know reform movements for, women, for women's rights when Christians moving forward and looking at how the world was changing made, made real progress and they made real difference. Um, and I think that's possible to us now if we wanna take up the challenge.
0: The book is Christian History in Seven Sentences. Our guest is Dr. Jennifer Woodruff Tate. You can follow her editorial work at christianhistoryinstitute.org and her blog at patheos.com. Jennifer, thank you for making the time to have this conversation. What an incredible reminder of where we have come from and where we might go by the leadership of God through Christ's church.
1: Thanks. It was great to be here.
0: We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. BSK offers multiple ways to pursue theological education, helping you learn and grow in your area of ministry. Programs include a 75-hour Master of Divinity degree with concentration in BSK's areas of emphasis, including Black Church Studies, Rural Ministry, and Pastoral Care. For ordained ministers or lay leaders alike, BSK offers nine-hour certificates in black church studies, rural ministries, and pastoral care, as well as two exploring ministry certificates for general ministry training. BSK also offers additional subject-specific training with Flourish workshops in subjects such as introduction to youth ministry, essentials in youth ministry, and the upcoming The Flight of the Soul of America. Now enrolling for fall 2022, apply today at bsk.edu. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out CBF.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we'd mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at CBF.net backslash podcast support.